This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No guests, no preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. Which is hard this week, because this is Encounter 105, They Met the Space Brothers and Sisters. Since the 1950s, all the way up through the present, one of the most consistent, if not always the most numerous or popular aspects of the UFO, flying saucer, possibly extraterrestrial phenomenon, has been um, that of individual humans coming into personal contact with beings that look, to varying degrees, like us, but claim to be from elsewhere. Today we're going to look at these folks, uh, known as the contactees, as a concept or a group, um, along with sort of the the grand high progenitor of the contactees. And uh, next week we'll uh, we'll take a look at uh, another of my favorite contactees, one of my favorite characters from Flying Saucer Belief, uh, one of my favorite stories ever. Uh, this week and next week, so it's a a one two punch of contactee goodness. Despite being around as long as flying saucers have been, pretty much, contactees and their beliefs are among the lesser-known aspects of UFO culture. They were, and mostly still are today, people who claim to have had either physical or psychic contact with extraterrestrial beings. There are some stereotypical characteristics of these encounters that make them different from abductions, but one thing that's become more common these days uh, as we get into the 21st century, is for elements of contactee-type encounters to really blur the lines with the more st- stereotypical um, abduction experiences. So we'll talk about that um, at a later time. But uh, the lines aren't as clearly drawn as they were back in the 1950s. But back then, there's some things that made contactee experiences sort of what they were. The extraterrestrial beings, supposedly, um, were human in appearance and, in many cases, uh, were identified specifically as humans from another planet. Often, not always, they hailed from one of the planets in Earth's solar system. This was especially true back before we knew as much as we do now about the atmosphere or makeup of Venus or Saturn or Neptune or Saturn, I said Saturn, or other planets. The contactees brought messages um, back to humanity on behalf of their alien friends, messages of things like universal brotherhood and warnings that Earth was in danger of destruction from violence and war, particularly nuclear conflict. Well, these characteristics are present in many contactee tales, and while contacteeism had its birth and peak in the 1950s, declined in the mid-60s, the story of contactees is, is a little more nuanced and has greater longevity than most know. Um, so why haven't we heard about these folks much? Um, unless you're somebody who's heard about these folks a lot. Uh, there are a couple of good reasons. For one, the contactee's presence was largely literary, as opposed to having a massive visual presence in the media. Apart from festival appearances, or especially in the 1950s, guest spots on radio programs, you didn't see contactees show up in the news media as part of serious stories about flying saucer sightings and what they might be, like you did people like Major Donald Kehoe of NICAP or Frank Edwards or other writers and thinkers and personalities 
who became identified with, I hate to use this phrase, but flying saucer studies during that time. Um, the shift in emphasis away from contact stories in the flying saucer mainstream towards a more, these are craft in the sky and we don't know who's in them, but we think they're aliens. That dominant UFO culture that emerged in the 1960s helped ensure that their stories have largely fallen below the radar, particularly in the United States. I mean, when, when hardcore saucer researchers like Donald Kehoe of NICAP say that contactees are making up their stories, and that's basically what he said, there's no, there's no debate here. They were making up their stories, he said. That's quite a blow to their credibility. And so news outlets that covered flying saucer stories tended to want to go to respected figures to get opinions. Now, contactees would show up in mainstream news stories in the 50s, but it was often as figures of, uh, of ridicule rather than as serious sort of contemplation. In order to explore the story of the contactees, uh, we really need to start with the original contactee, George Adamski. George Adamski was um, very much the prototypical flying saucer contactee. He claimed that he had his first encounter uh, in 1952, and published the account in 1953. And his ideas and stories influenced these narratives for decades afterward. Adamski was born in Poland in 1891 and came to the U.S. when he was two years old. In the 1920s, he moved to California, uh, founded a monastery, he called it a monastery, in Laguna Beach, called it the Royal Order of Tibet. Now, basically what this meant is that is that they uh, talked about uh, vaguely Eastern philosophy and were able to get a license to manufacture wine for religious purposes during Prohibition, um, and which is a nice little moneymaker. And during this time, he wrote a number of pamphlets talking about the dangers of war, greed, etc. After the first widely reported saucer sightings in 1947, it would be about two years before Am Adamski issued another public writing. Um, this was a science fiction novel entitled Pioneers of Space, A Trip to the Moon, Mars, and Venus, and it was his first nationally published work. Though he never claimed that the novel held literal truth, in his foreword, he sort of strongly states that he saw this as more than escapist fantasy. Quote, man upon earth is progressive and could be taken as a good measuring stick of the vast university in which he lives. We still see nothing but steady progress. And this is my favorite part of this. He encouraged readers to establish community roundtables and discussion groups using Pioneers of Space as a textbook and invited readers to write to him with questions they might have about the book, about his ideas. It reads less than a science fiction novel than it does a weird travelogue. There's a rocket crew. They go to the moon, Mars, and Venus, and on each planet, they question the natives about their lifestyles, cultures, and beliefs. All the civilizations were, civilizations, rather, were humanoid. They were all Caucasian, and they all worshipped a vague, nameless, supreme intelligence. All three of them, moon, Mars, and Venus, said that they had once lived as Earth people, caring more for material goods and power than they did for love and cooperation. They explained the Earth's condition... Its situation was akin to that of a small child, not quite knowing how things worked and learning, learning as it went along. But Earth might never achieve the higher level that their neighbors had because atomic blasts had thrown off the planet's balance. Space people had avoided this by overcoming materialism and greed, 
um, in Pioneers in Space, of space, Adamski showed that these principles were being used by civilizations that were not too different from humanity was in the late 1940s. Same physiology, language, they'd overcome the problems with which Earth at the time was struggling. Which doesn't really seem too surprising. Science fiction has often been a, a mirror for social commentary and political commentary. I, I think what's different about Adamski's science fiction as social commentary is that it's so sort of on the nose and blunt force. It's not a, it's not a clever scalpel of, um, of, of satire and parody and commentary. It's, it's just sort of a meat cleaver. Uh, this is what you think this is what you should think because the Venusians are really smart and this is what they think. But it was all still fiction. Until the 1950s. Um, by 1950, 50, 51, Adamski had uh, stopped writing science fiction and embarked on his saucer life. Uh, he'd been lecturing to local groups and he lived near Mount Palomar Observatory. He didn't work for the observatory, despite everything that he tried to imply sort of vaguely in his writings. He, uh, he worked at a hamburger stand down the way from Mount Palomar, but he had a telescope. He was interested in astronomy, and he held discussion groups about the possible origins and intentions of the flying saucers. His expertise on the subject stemmed from a number of photographs he claimed to have taken with the help of several telescopes, and in 53, he published his account of meeting a flying saucer pilot in the California desert. Um, There's a British writer named Desmond Leslie who wrote a book called Flying Saucers Have Landed, and this was mostly a survey of mysterious craft throughout human history, Ezekiel's wheel in the Bible, things like that. Adamski's encounter made up about the last fifth of the book, and expanded upon a story he'd been telling people in these uh, discussion groups since the previous November. He describes meeting a man from Venus, and like the aliens in uh, Pioneers of Space, the man looked, quote, like any other man, except for his ski suit-like clothing, long hair reaching to his shoulders. He communicated through telepathic, psychic communication, and Adamski uh, said that his name was Orthon, although Adamski often... You know, is very explicit that he he gives these names to these aliens. These aren't necessarily the names they use. They had a conversation, and, and Adamski closes it by asking why the saucers don't simply land on the White House lawn or other similar places. Orthon replies that his people were afraid of the response they would receive from humanity because humanity was was full of fear and and uh, was more inclined to fight rather than understand. Adamski closes his account with an appeal to believe in the Space Brothers for our own good. A deep analysis of events of the past makes me firmly believe that these people from other planets are our friends. I am convinced that their desire and their object is to help us and perhaps to protect us even from ourselves, as well as that they mean to ensure the safety and balance of the other planets in our system. But if we continue on the path of hostility between nations of Earth, and if we continue to show an attitude of indifference, ridicule, and even aggression toward our fellow men in space, I am firmly convinced that they could take powerful action against us, not with weapons of any kind, but by manipulation of the natural force of the universe which they understand and know how to use. I barely brushed against this force as it was being used in a subdued degree, yet I felt the effects of it for several weeks after the encounter. 
I have but one sincere purpose in narrating the foregoing experience. My most urgent message and plea to every person who reads it is let us be friendly. Let us recognize and welcome the men from other worlds. They are here among us. Let us be wise enough to learn from those who can teach us much, who will be our friends if we but let them. Reaction to a Damsty story was immediate. Flying Sauces of Land had went through 11 printings in the first two years of publication. But despite this popularity, the uh, nascent Flying Saucer research community was pretty split over Adamski's experience. He had many supporters among saucer researchers, but he also had uh, some vociferous critics. And the most significant and outspoken was James Mosley, whose memoir we covered in our last episode. Mosley wrote a stunning and damaging expose on Adamski's encounter. In um, It was published in July, not July, January 1955. It's issue of Nexus magazine. He um, started off by demonstrating that the uh, the saucer and Damsky's photographs was could easily be replicated with any number of household goods. Um, I think he cited a Chrysler hubcap, a coffee can, and ping pong uh, ping pong balls. He went on to explain um, through interviews of Adamski's witnesses that it was uh, pretty easy to see that none of them had actually witnessed the things that Adamski claimed they witnessed. Um, they didn't see a craft. They didn't see a visitor. Adamski went off onto the desert, came back where they were having a picnic or whatever, and told them these things. Adamski was undaunted by these claims. As he would always say, time will tell uh, whether he was telling the truth or not. He published his next book in 1955, um, right about when the uh, the criticism uh, the criticism really hit from Adamski's uh, or from Mosley's expose of Adamski. The new book was um, called um, Inside the Spaceships, and it was basically his adventures aboard the saucers with the uh, Venusians and Saturnians, and it's a lot like Pioneers of Space. Um, it, it, it's clear that that its inspiration was that earlier science fiction novel. It's a series of set pieces that uh, that basically outline alien beliefs and and culture and, and practices. It's not a story. It's not a cohesive narrative. And he also uh, introduced some space sisters into the mix. As I stepped through the doorway into this luxurious lounge, my attention instantly was absorbed by two incredibly lovely young women who arose from one of the divans and came toward us as we entered. This was indeed a tremendous surprise, as, for some reason, I had never visualized women as space travelers. Their very presence and extraordinary beauty, the friendliness that was so apparent as they approached to greet us, together with the luxurious background and the out-of-this-world craft, were overwhelming. Inside the Spaceships was a logical extension of the Adamski belief system. He has conversations with um, with, a, with a, a being called well, he's a master. He, he's above the normal Venusians and Saturnians you meet. And all the conversations with the master are along the same lines. Humanity has to learn to obey the universal law to preserve peace around the world. And as we hear in this excerpt, if we don't obey the universal law, then, then at least maybe we could live up to our own laws and the own, our own ideals that we profess to hold. There is nothing wrong with your earth, nor with its people, except that in their lack of understanding, they are young children in the universal life of the one supreme being. 
You have been told that in our worlds we live the Creator's laws, while as yet on earth you only talk of them. If you would live by the precepts of even what you know now, the peoples of earth would not go out to slaughter one another. They would work within themselves, their own groups, their own nations, to achieve good and happiness in that section of your world wherein they were born, and therefore call home. Perhaps, given the criticism of uh, Adamski's accounts of witnesses who can corroborate a story and, and the, uh, the exposés of his photographs, the book is not photograph-heavy. There's two photographs of alleged spaceships, um, but there are drawings by Adamski of, of what the interiors of these ships looks like. And he lists no witnesses, no friends who could corroborate a story. Even more than flying saucers have landed, the account there, inside the spaceship's um, requires the reader to believe Adamski's story on almost complete faith. Adamski's point, however, is not to convince the reader that he literally flew on a flying saucer. Rather, I believe his ideas about peace and cooperation take center stage here. The flying saucer is just sort of a, 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 a stage for him to talk about philosophical ideas that he had held since before uh, the flying saucers emerged. Adamski's third and final contact ebook was published in 1960, and it's called Flying Saucer's Farewell. However, the paperback was, be called, was called Behind the Flying Saucer Mystery. This was often the case, that as different publishers picked up the rights to these books, they would change the titles to be a, a, what they thought was more, uh, more engaging and more, um, more easily sellable. Um, and Behind the Flying Saucer Mystery... Um, really does sound like it's more exciting than Flying Saucer's fan Farewell. The book uh, represented something of a departure from his formula of imparting wisdom and lessons on the cosmic law or universal law. Uh, Flying Saucer's Farewell had two distinct parts, one original and one was just a reprint of his earlier pamphlet from the 30s, Satan, Man of the Hour. In the first part, Adamski responded to criticisms of his saucer tales and, 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 and made up things like cosmic mathematics to explain why, uh, why these things could fly. Um, he attempted to prove that, th that the saucer technology he described in his earlier books were science fact, not science fiction. And he mixed this up with some reiterations of messages from the great master uh, from inside the spaceships, provides some lessons and teachings on universal law, cosmic law, further instructions that would help humanity move up that ladder of spiritual evolution. Adamski traveled the world uh, with his, uh, I mean, it might be a bit, uh, his shtick, his, his act, which it really was. Um, he was a showman. He was a, a good speaker. Um, he's an interesting speaker, called himself professor. Other people called him professor. He wasn't a professor of any kind. Um, he would continue to maintain that the photographs he took were genuine. There are people today who believe the photographs are genuine or maintain that the photographs are genuine. The, uh, the George Adamski Foundation is out there on the internet. And, and they are, uh, they're, they're a, a core of, of true believers who basically maintain the intellectual property, Adamski's books, his photographs, and they, they, guard, that, they guard that pretty tenaciously. When I, uh, when I wanted to reproduce some um, Adamski saucer photographs in my, uh, my book, Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist, I, you know, of course, had to get permission to, to, use, these, um, to use these photographs. And... Uh, they 
were they they wanted more than anybody else they wanted to know exactly what I was planning to say about Adamski and and honestly I was not I wasn't exposing Adamski and there, there's no expose in my book because the expo Jim Mosley did the expose back in 1955 but um, I sort of talked about him in the context of of sort of fear and 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 resistance to the the emerging Cold War order so I, I sort of spoke about him not in if not in glowing terms, but sort of as I did here. This is a guy with some philosophical ideas that that predate his flying saucer, um, his flying saucer uh, deal, and um, and it's an important strand of a of American history. But I did get permission to use the photos. But if you uh, if you have a copy of book nine ninety nine on Amazon, um, you will see that across all of the Adamski photos, in sort of sort of. Aerial sans-serif font is uh, is reduced, produced with reproduced with permission of of George Adamski Foundation and like their website or something. So they they wanted to make sure. I think that's how they know if they see one of these pictures out there that, that this person had permission. At the end of inside the spaceships, uh, some things get kind of strange. Or flying sa- not uh, fl- flying saucers farewell. I meant not inside the spaceships. As he goes around the world, he talks about his his saucer lectures in New Zealand and England and the Netherlands and Italy and India in the late 50s and early 60s. And um, he talks about how there were hecklers in the crowd and detractors and people who wanted to keep him from speaking. And he attributes this to the Silence Group, which is the name given by Donald Kehoe to the, uh, the forces, in, in Kehoe's mind, the Air Force, that were trying to keep the truth of flying saucers hidden from the public. Um, it's probably not coincidental that talk of an overtly sinister silence group, like Adamski discusses here, trying to shut him up, um, that this emerges after uh, we see the emergence of the Men in Black stories that uh, we spoke about uh, several weeks ago in, um, in our encounter with uh, Al Bender and Gray Barker and the Men in Black. Um, there were people opposed to Adamski's teachings who saw him as a hoaxer, a fraud, um, a charlatan of some kind. Um, and, and maybe he was, he would continue to write and lecture until his death in 1965. And, um, it became more and more philosophical as he got older and older. And he really lost interest in doing anything to prove the reality of extraterrestrial visitation. He never abandoned that part of the story. He never denounced it. He just didn't waste his time trying to prove things to people who probably would never believe him and focused more on his teachings of the cosmic law. Uh, He died uh, in 1965. And one of the most persistent examples of his enduring influence among contactees uh, began with his obituary, which was written, co-written by um, his uh, earlier collaborator, Desmond Leslie, and his longtime associate, Alice K. Wells, who, who drew some drawings of Orthon in the original book. Wells claims that Adamski was, quote, a member of the Interplanetary Council, and that while his earthly body had died, his eternal soul was still at work, assisting the Space Brothers. And Leslie confirmed that Adamski um, believed he had a soul which originated on another more advanced planet. And um, he also tells, you know, I mean, this is unverifiable, but resonated with Adamski's admirers. Claims that um, Leslie claims that that uh, Adamski had shown him a, a bizarre birthmark um, 
located around the navel. It was, quote, a huge solar disc with deeply cut rays extending out about six inches all around it from waist to groin. Uh, and Leslie believes this indicated that Adamski was a child of the sun and, quote, doesn't believe by any means that we have seen the last of him. If he is reborn on another planet, he has promised to come back and contact us when possible. George Adamski was the first one to have a saucer afterlife. We'll conclude our little introduction to the contactees next time with our <laughs> season one finale as we look at one of my favorite contactees ever, uh, Truman Bethram, and the way that the saucer life can uh, negatively impact the married life. In the meantime, thanks for listening. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.wordpress.com and on Twitter at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We love your feedback, uh, and if you could rate and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, wherever else, that would be uh, great. Sharing and retweeting, we really appreciate that. Um, providing the link on, uh, on, on various sites is, is great. I uh, do want to give a shout-out to Red Pill Junkie, who put a list, link to Encounter 104, our uh, Read These Books segment, uh, up on the Daily Grail. That was uh, really appreciate that. Thanks. This time, go out to Greg Bishop, whose article from a few years ago uh, called My Bias Filter is Better Than Your Bias Filter, or Why I Like Contactees Better Than Abductees, introduced me, um, gosh, more than a few years ago, probably the early 21st century, 2001 or so, uh, introduced me to how interesting the contactees could be. And I've linked to that article in the uh, show notes on the website. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. And until next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. Orthon is watching you from Venus in his flying saucer.